I want you to think right now, little, I won't ask you for, uh, you know, verbal feedback at this point, but I want you to think of the three things that you want most at this moment, all right? Three things that you want most at this moment. I'll give you a second, and, and it actually would be helpful for you maybe to jot it down on a piece of paper that you have. So um, some of you are saying, oh, wow, I've got to get like really engaged mentally. Yes, you do, and not just mentally. I want you to engage at the heart level. Because, and I'm not talking about stuff like, you know, it'd be really nice if uh, I could get rid of the dandelions in my yard, although that is like maybe top 10 for me. Um, it's a plague. That's, that's how I feel. But no, I'm talking about heart level things, heart level things. And I'm actually going to share with you, because I did this exercise early this morning myself, because I thought it'd be a little hypocritical to ask you to think of uh, top three things that you want most at this moment and not share the, the first three things that came to me. Um, Chad is helping me with these PowerPoint things. He's done a tremendous job in these early weeks. We, we talk every week, though, about trying to coordinate this, uh, and, and he wants to be, like, right on cue, and I've said, you've done a great job. It's not a big deal, but here we go. You want to know my three things this morning? The first one that came to my mind was rest, and that's how I filled in my first blank, uh, and I just got back yesterday having made a quick trip, trip to South Carolina. Some of you knew about this. Had an opportunity to preach in a, in a Christian college chapel, uh, Wednesday and Thursday, they were doing a special emphasis on evangelism, and uh, it was great to have that privilege. Also, got to see uh, my two older children who are there, and my dad and stepmom and in-laws and some siblings and things. So it was packed four days. So I'm tired for a couple of reasons, but rest would be one. But even more than just like, hey, a g- extra good night. I mean, th- there's a lot that stirs up our souls, and so some of that even would just be. A rest at the soul level. Here's number two that I filled in the blank this morning, uh, joy. And that's not because I'm particularly sad, but I just feel like, you know, there's this ongoing fight for joy. Uh, many things that can become a little overwhelming to our hearts, and, and I feel that very often, joy. My number third thing that I put uh, this morning was love. And no reflection on Kristen. As I as I was thinking about this like three minutes ago, I'm like, oh, that could look like really dangerous um, no, I'm grateful for the love of my wife, the love of my family, the love of friends. Uh, many of you really have given love, but you know, there's just, there's just that ongoing desire. What's interesting to me is that if, if you polled one another right now, and we'll do this a little more generically, I found an article this week that recorded the top 10 things people want in life but can't seem to get. And, and look at this list as it builds in really quickly. Happiness, money, freedom, peace, joy, balance, fulfillment, confidence, stability, passion. I mean, I actually, I, I actually think most of us would say, yeah, I, I could stand a little more of any one of those things. Our lists probably boil down to a few basic things, don't they? And I actually don't put money nearly as high on the list as some of those other things, although it's always nice to have something in your wallet or bank account, right? No, I think the kinds of things that most of us really desire can be found in the context of relationships. And whether it be earthly relationships with family or friends, or whether it be a vertical relationship with God himself, the kinds of things we're really seeking can only be found in relationships. But I'm also persuaded that Jesus Christ knows these longings in our hearts in part because he created them. 
It's not as if he created all that is, put life in motion, gave us life, as we've looked at some of the passages in recent weeks that describe him as the creator of all that is, and and then suddenly found himself surprised that his creatures would desire things like love and joy or freedom or peace or balance or stability or passion. I think actually these longings within us are a reflection, sometimes a dim reflection, sometimes a distorted reflection, but nonetheless a reflection of God himself, of Jesus Christ. And the problem is that sin, our sin as a human race, has so corrupted and distorted even the best of our desires that we've grown accustomed to the abuse and misuse of many of these good desires and the disappointment and failure and hurt that accompanies all of that. That's why sometimes we even kind of anesthetize ourselves. We either put distance relationally between people who have hurt us or people that we fear will hurt us, and so we kind of stand at a distance. Yet all the while, I mean, these longings just continue to roll, uh, roll through our souls. And so we live life kind of in the shadows. It's kind of like living in Sandy across the valley. Say, what do you mean? Well, I look across the valley this direction most mornings, and I see the glorious sunlight of these beautiful spring mornings hitting these mountains over here long before it actually shines on my yard. And I'm happy for people over here who are already getting, you know, increased supply of vitamin D, but I just keep waiting for it. And sometimes I feel like I wait an hour or two longer. Now, I know in the heat of summer, that's a good thing. You guys will be baking over on this side of the valley while we're still like a, a little cooler. But at least at this season, you know, it just feels like, oh man, I wish the, 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 the brilliant sunlight that's across the valley would be right here on me now. And I think sometimes in life, we, we live in the shadows a little bit. We, we get experiences of it, or maybe we see it from a distance, but we're still not in the full light of some of these very things. But you know, the last several weeks, we were looking at scriptures that tell us, among other things, that Jesus has actually designed and initiated so much more for us, and and life, as he intended, begins in him, it flows out of him, and ultimately will be consummated in him. Remember some of those beautiful passages, Ephesians 1, last week, most recently, that told us that the purpose of God from all eternity is to reconcile all things in Jesus, and oh, how, how we long for that. Until that moment, there's a really beautiful plan that Jesus Christ has set before us, though, where weak and struggling people can find acceptance and comfort and love and joy and peace and the various things that might even be on your list that we haven't named yet this morning. And it's not a perfect experience of it, but it is a Christ-like experience. And it's not without its challenges, but it is blessed. And it's, it doesn't come without personal commitment and sacrifice, but it yields something satisfying and comforting and blessing. What am I talking about? I'm talking about a life of love in the community of faith, a life of love in an assembly just like this. And if you were to take a Bible concordance and look up the little phrase, one another, you would find that there are 70 entries in the New Testament, just the New Testament alone. And about 50 of those entries are actually direct commands or instructions for the church. Let me give you an example of this. In Romans 12, verse 10, you read the verse, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Or Galatians 5, 13, 
serve one another. Or Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another. But more than any other single one another command or instruction that you would find, the phrase love one another occurs in the New Testament's New Testament, the greatest number of times. 14 times, as a matter of fact, in 13 verses, if you were to want to know specifically. Now, wonderfully, the first time this command appears in the New Testament is John 13, verses 34 and 35. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're not going to stay in chapter 13 for very long. We'll actually move over to chapter 15, but two passages where the Lord Jesus himself speaks, and in many of your uh, uh, printed Bibles, these are red letters. And the red letters are reminders to us that these are the words of Jesus himself. And so in John 13, verse 34, the Lord speaks to his disciples and says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so there in those two verses, that phrase, one another, love one another, is repeated several times, isn't it? Well, my question is, what does this kind of love for one another look like? It's my firm conviction that having studied this particular theme several different times over the years, that when you look at all the remaining passages in the New Testament that include that phrase, one another, that actually is a fuller description of what this kind of active love looks like because Jesus is talking more talking talking more than than just a a warm feeling that you might have toward the person seated next to you today the the term love that he employs clearly conveys the idea of action and so if you read through these texts and you think carefully you will see that Christ has fulfilled every one of these commands toward us and it's out of that example that he then calls us to participate with him in loving others. Now go over to John 15 because here's the second time this uh, command of Christ appears and in verses 12 and 13 we read the words of Jesus again. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone then that someone lays down his life for his friends. Just a few quick thoughts, because I'm actually beginning a, a, a study today, a sermon series that's going to extend over a number of months. I don't know how long this will take yet. I just know that if we did all 50 passages in the New Testament, we've got probably a year and a half or two worth of messages. But I don't intend to preach two years on this. But it's also not going to be two weeks. And I've started talking with the other guys about this, and we've kind of mapped it out for at least the, you know, the next several months, uh, all right? So today is going to be more broad, and then we're going to kind of like if you're in a plane, you're flying at 30, 35,000 feet, and you can see the land that's under you. Uh, so we're not going to get really specific today, but in the weeks to come, we're going to drop down to a lower level and start talking about key components of this one another love what it looks like, how it thinks, how it talks, how it responds to needs that it encounters. So look with me, first of all, at the text, and notice that Jesus teaches us very clearly to, come, to love one another through his first command. Jesus commands this love. So I don't want you to think it's optional. 
You know, I want you to feel like, well, you know, I'm not really wired up that way. I'm not a very affectionate person. That's not what we're talking about. You know, I'm just not really into the, you know, lovey-dovey romance thing. That's not what we're talking about. It's something else. Verse 34, uh, or back in chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give you. Jesus uses that same term here in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Now, this love has to do with placing regard on another person. It's a conscious choice. We often love people because they contribute something to us or we find them attractive. They bring value to our life uh, or to our world. But the kind of love that Jesus is speaking of right here is a love that actually looks at another person and says things like this. You know what? Because they're created in the image of God, I love them. Because they've experienced the grace of Jesus and known the forgiveness of sins just as I have amazingly received the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. I'm going to love them for Christ's sake. You see, this kind of love can look past the things that would make us uncomfortable. Say, well, we're not from the same part of town. We didn't grow up in the same kind of community. Or we were educated in different places. Or, you know, they're a different economic class, whether above or below. Or We have all kinds of things that as a culture divide us one from another, don't we? But this love of Jesus that we have experienced, if you're a follower of Jesus, or that we've sung about and we're seeing in the scriptures today, it's a love that transcends all of that stuff that tends to divide us one from another. It's a love that begins with a conscious decision that says, I'm going to place value on that person, and because they are valuable in God's sight, and because they are valuable in, in the eyesight of our church family, I'm going to love them. So the idea is one of our acting toward others. It's not merely carrying a particular emotion or feeling in your heart. You know, you can say you love something or someone, but if there's not demonstrable action, the words begin to mean very little, don't they? A couple of us were talking before the service started, and you know, if you said, if I said to you as a, as a new person, yeah, I, I, I really love the Utah Jazz, and, you said, and you're like jumping all over it like, yeah, this has been an incredible season, isn't it? And, and that Donovan Mitchell is amazing. And I say, wait, 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 who's Donovan Mitchell? And you'd say, uh, hello, are you serious? You know, he's like our wonder kid. I'm like, oh, oh, he plays for the Jazz. I mean, you'd, you'd feel this great disconnect. Like, you just said you love the Jazz, but you don't even know. And you started listing off other players or the coach or you know, even the, the new uniforms, which I kind of think are really cool, um, although I know there's mixed opinion there. But I'm, so, I'm standing there just looking at you blank, you know, face, like, and you say, but I thought you said I, you love the jazz. Oh, I love the jazz. But there's nothing about my knowledge or experience, nothing about my loyalty as a fan that demonstrates my life matches my words you would say, you might want to back that up, Danny, and, and think of other words to say, because when you say you love the jazz, it implies to the world around you that you know about them, that you follow them, that you've watched at least a few of the games or gone to a game. You know, for us to say we love one another and yet there not be anything behind that, it, it's actually hypocrisy. So we need to make sure we understand when Jesus is calling us to love others, he's calling us to get to work. The Apostle John captures this in his first letter toward the end of the New Testament in 1 John 3.18. He says, little children, and that's a term of endearment as he writes to the church. 
Let us love in word. Or let us not love in word or talk only, but in deed and truth. It's okay to say it. Just make sure you're getting busy after you say it. So Jesus commands love. Here's a second thought for you this morning. Letter B, Jesus models love. In chapter 13, verse 1, the sweet testimony is recorded that Jesus loved them to the end. That is, his disciples. He, he had walked with him for three years, and when chapter 13 opens, he's in the last hours before his betrayal and crucifixion. And it's interesting, the story that comes right after that little phrase, he loved them to the end, is the story of Christ getting up from this special supper, laying aside his his uh, outer garment and wrapping himself with a servant's apron or towel and beginning to wash the feet of his disciples. This is the action of a household slave. And Peter is the one who's initially offended by that almost, like, Lord, not so. Don't, don't wash my feet. That's beneath you. And I think Peter, in a sweet way, is actually trying to honor the Lord Jesus. But Jesus is showing us something of, the, of a servant's heart and the great love that he has for these men. He loved them to the end. But then as we keep reading through John 13, we come to verse 14, and after Jesus completes that remarkable display of humble service, he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That is, humble yourself and do the work of a household slave with a view that it will benefit other people. Then verse 15, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. No one here has ever interacted with the living Jesus as he interacted with his disciples. I mean, he's ascended to heaven. We believe he is, but he's not on planet earth at this moment. But I want you to think for a moment, how has Christ loved you? Would you go back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah? Isaiah is a longer book in the Old Testament. And in Isaiah 53, as the prophet describes Messiah, and that is Jesus, there are some very specific expressions of Christ's love for us that I want you to think about. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, we read, Surely He, speaking of Jesus as Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Can I pause right here and make sure you're in the right frame of mind? What Isaiah is actually describing is the, is the suffering and death of Jesus. And when he says we esteemed him as having been stricken or smitten of God and afflicted, that is, if you were just a kind of a, 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 a bystander observing the cross, you might be tempted to think that this man who was suffering so horrifically did something really bad that God would allow this to happen to him. That's kind of the default mode of most of our thinking unless the Spirit of God comes and gives us understanding as to what is really taking place. So I, Isaiah is saying, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Like, what did that guy do that he would die in such a horrible way? But look at verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement or the discipline that brought us peace. And with his stripes, the ugly wounds of a Roman cat of nine tails and the brutal uh, wounds of those nails and that crown of thorns, with his stripes, we are healed. You may not have had a personal face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ as the disciples were privileged to have in their days. But Christ has loved you in the ultimate sacrifice. You know, Matthew's gospel uh, and all four gospels record these things, but just doing a quick survey of some of the ways that Jesus loved the people that he was with is quite remarkable. He showed his love by healing the sick. He liberated the demon-possessed. He blessed the ones who were so impoverished in spirit that they were described as poor in spirit. He relieved the anxiety-ridden people. He warned the self-righteous fault finders. He cleansed the lepers by actually touching them. He cured the diseased. He comforted the doubting. He brought rest and renewal to the weary. He restored the handicapped. He fed the hungry and calmed the fearful and even blessed the little children who were often marginalized in that society. And when you read the Gospels, you have a profound sense that you are or could be any one of these people. And yet Jesus continues to reach out with this remarkable love that heals, that restores, that strengthens, that cleanses, that forgives, that welcomes. And all of these acts of healing and blessing and relieving and warning and cleansing and curing, of comforting, of resting, of restoring and feeding and calming and blessing are expressions of His love for sinful, imperfect, broken people. And one of the great blessings of reading through the Gospels is that it becomes intensely personal because you read story after story and there's something in every one of those characters that we relate to. And whether it be someone who's diseased or someone who's pleading for the healing and health of a child or whether it be a self-righteous Pharisee like Nicodemus who feels the great tension of his religious training and background and the way he's been living compared to what Jesus teaches, yet Jesus has room in his heart and in his life for all of these people. And his love is active. And if you want to know how Jesus would love you, if you've never experienced or encountered him before, read the Gospels. Because no matter how diseased or broken or bad or far away from God a person is, when they begin to interact with Jesus, he is all life and all love. He is all welcome and forgiveness. It's as if he just draws people in and says, come here, I love you. So from those gentle touches of little children in times where there is not crisis all the way to the cross, the love of Jesus exceeds what we could really imagine we might experience if we came to him. In the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 5, he writes, when we were yet without strength, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.
Can you believe that? We can probably tell stories, some taken from battlefields, some taken from hospital rooms where somebody sacrificed maybe life itself or uh, even I I think of those who've been organ donors and and really risked a lot to give uh, an organ like a kidney to a family member or friend who needed something. I mean, but but it's usually a, a good person doing something for another good person. That's Paul's point. We, we can wrap our minds around that, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were sinners, that means while we were hostile and enemies, while we were in rebellion against him, his son, Jesus Christ, died for us. How much does God love you? How much does Jesus Christ love you that he would do that? That's why we sang earlier, amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Jesus exchanged places with us, took our sin on himself, took God's wrath on himself, died in our place so that God might forgive our sins fully, and save us eternally. And the reality of Christ's love overwhelms us, but it begins to secure us. John 15, 12 is Christ's powerful expression of perfect, undying, eternal love for you and me. He said it with his life, not just his words. Well, let's go to the third point here, and that is that Jesus has not only commanded our love and he has not only modeled love but now he now directs our love that is he gives us an object for our love and what is that well one another in the context it is the disciples that are in view and for us that would be the body of christ that's not to say that we don't love people who are outside of our assembly no it's just a a particular focus it's kind of like a family talk going on right now you know sometimes a mom or dad sits everybody down and says okay in our family, this is the way things are going to be. And it doesn't mean you suddenly like exclude everybody else and none of these things would ever apply in those contexts, but there's a very specific conversation that's taking place. Now, I want you to think for a moment of, of who this encompasses. And to do that, it's okay to look around right now. Just don't stare and make the person next to you really uncomfortable. Now, some of this is challenging. Thank you, Gideon. I appreciate your willingness to respond in that way. <laughs> but some of you look around and say, I still don't know that person. Or worse yet, I met that person last week, but I cannot remember his name. (laughs) Hey, you know what? Well, while we're in this kind of startup mode, it's okay to say, uh, I'm Danny. I should remember your name, but I don't. Please forgive me. Help, Help me out here. And don't take offense at that. We're all working at it, all right? That's part of how we love one another. But sometimes we even there get a little so fearful that we're gonna offend somebody because they just told us last week, or, or even worse than what I just said worse yet, they've actually told you three weeks in a row. <laughs> and now you're about to say it for it. So, hey, it's just gonna take time, right? We're gonna get there. So while a lot of us don't know one another well yet, in time we will. And part of the way God intends for us to know one another and actually to exercise this love toward uh, one another is as we experience significant needs. 
Because the love of Jesus is not given you know, for bright, sunny days when life is good and nobody has cares. Actually, the love Jesus is calling us to works most beautifully in the context of deep need. That's why when we get deeper into this series, when we see the command, comfort one another, well, you can't actually fulfill that unless somebody needs to be comforted. How about forgiveness? The command to forgive one another. You don't forgive people who haven't sinned against you. So God's not gonna command us to sin in order that we can forgive, but he recognizes that imperfect people sin against each other, even, even in a church family. So whether it's comfort or forgiveness, or how about this command? This will be a fun one to study. Bear with one another. That is, just be patient. Well, when do you need patience? Uh, when you're provoked, when you're irritated, when somebody is just like rubbing the fur the wrong way? You mean that's gonna happen in our church family? Oh, yeah. But God has a plan for that already. It's his love flowing through us. So, as you look around, you should not only be aware that these are the people God's calling you to, but these people represent significant needs where the love of God will powerfully work and meet those needs. So it ought to be exciting to us. I learned of a need this morning that I'm gonna follow up on. And as it was being shared with me, I was thinking to myself, well, here it is. I've been studying, preparing to preach this message all week, and here's gonna be a way that, that our church family will be able to show love for members of, of this congregation. While I'm thinking about this, I wanted to just say a, a huge thank you to those of you who've cared for the Hayes in recent weeks. Because you needed a little extra love, didn't you? Yeah. And with Doreen's shoulder surgery, that meant she couldn't do some of the day-to-day things with Bob that they are accustomed to doing. And, and what was incredible is to just see people step up and go, sure, I, I can go down and help them. And we had a number of days in a row two weeks yeah and I just want to say thank you to the church family thank you to those of you who, who didn't even hesitate just jumped right in well that's it that's it now very quickly let's go back to, to John 15 and look at verse 12 because Jesus establishes the standard of our love for one another and there are just two, two quick points here that I want to make but these are really important for us first of all it's a love that is similar and that little word, as, is really important. In John 15, 12, his command to love one another, as I have loved you. So that means we need to think a little bit about, well, how has Christ loved us? We already looked at Isaiah 53. We already noted Romans 8. We've been talking about the cross. It was sacrifice, ultimate sacrifice. We'll get to that in just a moment uh, as we think a little more deeply. But we, we surveyed Matthew's gospel and noticed things like, healing and encouraging and providing, feeding. I mean, there are all kinds of ways it expresses. But I do want you to think always that he's the standard by which we evaluate our love. Now, this does a couple of things. One, it protects us from comparing ourselves one to another. Some people just seem to be more gifted, don't they, in seeing a need and meeting it graciously, or they speak words, and we kind of stand back like, oh, man, I wish I could think of things like that to say. Don't compare yourselves one to another. Because that's not the point. Jesus doesn't say love one another as the most experienced Christian in your church loves or love one another as the person you admire most loves. No, he says love one another as I have loved you. So that means we're gonna keep Jesus as the one and only standard of love. 
So that's going to protect us from comparison. It's also going to keep the bar set beyond what any of us naturally can do. And that's going to continue to inspire and motivate us. So we're never going to compare ourselves one to another in this regard. We're going to just let Jesus remain that only exclusive point of comparison. Love that is similar to his. Now I also want you to think of these couple of thoughts here as kind of the the boundary markers of his love. When I was um, younger, and Chad, I'm getting some things out of order here. I'm just mindful of that, so PowerPoint guy back there is suddenly sweating. Um, you know, my mom would sometimes say, uh, you can go outside and play, but stay in the yard. And that can sometimes create difficulty because our yard wasn't particularly, you know, special compared to my neighbor one street over, Kevin Walker, who had a pool in his backyard. And on hot summer days, I would have much rather been in his yard than in my yard. And sometimes he would invite me to come down. Um, But sometimes my mom was like, no, you can't even go to Kevin's. You need to stay right here in the yard. And that kind of of hem us in um, a little bit. Well, in a sense, God is saying, uh, you wonder how much space you have to roam in and love in? a love that is not only similar to Jesus, but a love that is sacrificial. Um, so looking at the second point, back in John 15, 3, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. You mean I can go that far? I, I can actually lay down my life, literally, for another person? Yeah, that's how far. There's, there's nothing beyond that for you and me, is there? There's a lot between where we are and that point where we would actually lay down our lives. There's a lot of sacrifice that can happen between this point and giving my life in death for someone. But that's how huge this yard of love really is. In a sense, it's like the Lord just pushed down any artificial barrier because we put up all kinds of things. Well, you know... um, as long as they're within the same ethnic group I'm comfortable with, I can love them. No, that, that's not a boundary. Um, same economic class. No, that's not a boundary that the Lord thinks. Similar education. Similar hobbies. Sim- no, the Lord just kind of pushed all those human boundaries down and says, you, you can go all the way to the place where you give your life. And that's where I think I'm not sure I really know what loving others is all about. Greater love, Jesus says. There is no greater love. So we're free as a church family to just give ourselves completely to one another. Your time, your money, your resources, your energy, You can give it all away because Jesus says, to what extent can you love? Well, there's no greater love than you lay down your life. You see, these are the things that begin to create a different kind of community, the kind of community we all hope and even dream of being a part of. 
Because go back to some of those basic needs that we were looking at the very outset. I don't know what's on your list this morning, but if it included things like rest or joy or acceptance or comfort or peace, I suspect that you're thinking of a lot of those things in the context of relationships. And Jesus Christ has designed his church, and we're just one little local manifestation of the big church that's in the world. But he's designed this to be a place that creates that kind of a culture where you can walk in on any given Sunday and know this is a place where you're going to be accepted and loved for who you are. You might need to be exhorted to righteous living. You might need even to be confronted in your sin. That is a Christ-like act of love. But sometimes you need a hug. Sometimes you need a sympathetic ear. Sometimes you need somebody to come alongside and say, let me help you solve this problem. But God knows that you can't live this life alone, and so he's brought you through this death and resurrection of Jesus Christ into relationship with other people who can pour out his love upon you. And he wants you to be that kind of person who's pouring out love. This is both exciting and it's a little sobering, isn't it? So that means life in church is far more than just coming and attending a service and then going and living the rest of your life. That, that means there's going to be involvement and inconvenience and there is going to be sacrifice and opportunity, but there's going to be a lot of joy and blessing along the way. Well, as I said toward the outset, there are almost 50 other passages in the New Testament that are going to help fill this out. And I'm excited to study this with you over the next several months. And I'm going to be excited to see how God in his kindness says, okay, you studied that passage on Sunday, now let me help you live it out. And I'm just warning you right now, that, that's going to be scary and inconvenient. It's going to be painful at moments because you'll be like, oh, yeah, that passage, forgiving one another, I can't believe you would say such hateful, sinful words. Those hurt. And then your friend says, I did hurt you, and I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? And you're standing at that crossroads going, do I do the Christ-like loving thing and forgive, or do I say, no, I won't forgive you? Oh, I'm just telling you right now, those are gonna be hard moments, and we're actually gonna be tempted to walk away from one another in the weeks and months and years ahead. But God is saying, nope, it's not what my people do. That's not what my family does. You love one another as Christ has loved you. So as we think this through in conclusion, first of all, I want to make sure that you're beginning to see how much Jesus Christ loves you. You have to start there. You have to start at the cross. Just meditate on the cross and say, that's how much he loved me. Amazing love that you, my God, would die for me. Do you believe that he actually died in your place? I hope you do. Have you confessed your sin to Jesus and asked for his forgiveness? It's going to be real hard to forgive other people if you've never experienced his forgiveness in your soul. Have you ever called upon his name in order to be saved, to be born again? You can do that right now, you know. Do you know how much Jesus Christ loves you? Here's a second thought. How does your love at this moment, your love for others, compare to Christ's love for you? And you know what? Some of us need to be real honest and say, "Eh, it's not very Christ-like. Okay, then you confess that. Just admit it. Be honest with God. He already knows it. You're not telling him something he doesn't know, but say, you know what? My love for my spouse, for my kids, even for this church, it's just, it's not really what it ought to be. God, will you forgive me? 
And then moving into that third question, will you submit to the command of Christ and dedicate yourself to loving others? Because that's an important, it's, it's good to turn away from all the bad stuff, the sin in our lives, but it's just as important to turn toward the good, the right to obedience. And you know what? For some of you, that's a very significant question to, to work through because it means you're gonna stop living for yourself and you're gonna be living for Christ and others. So we want to do that individually, but here's the fourth thought. Can we commit ourselves to being a church family that distinguishes itself by our love for one another? You remember what Jesus said back in John 13? By this will all people know that you really are my disciples if you have love one for another. I'm so thrilled for what our church has already done, coming together, passing out invitations on Thursday nights, inviting people to come, and we've seen a number of guests uh, who've come uh, as a direct result of, of being there, inviting people. But do you know what's an even more compelling invitation to, for people to come join our assembly? It's your life and mine being seen in the context of loving others when it's most difficult. And I'm telling you right now, there are, there are hundreds and hundreds of people living right around you and right around me who long for a community that is accepting, that is not self-righteous in its judgment of others, that is not ruthless in its gossip or talk about others who fail, uh, people who are longing for just meaningful relationship, and Jesus has designed his local churches like this to be that visible, powerful witness. By this, all people will know that you really are my disciples as you love one another. So don't underestimate the evangelistic power of this kind of love. But you've got to commit to it, and so do I. Let's pray together for just a moment. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for the great sacrificial love that he has demonstrated toward us. Thank you, Jesus, that you died the death we deserved took our sins on yourself. Thank you that you took God the Father's wrath. That was wrath that had built up and should have been poured out upon us for our sin, but you took it upon your, on your loving shoulders. Thank you. And now, having saved us from sin and death and guilt you have called us to love and oh how we pray that you would grow us in our love one for another and I pray that you would remove from our hearts every sin every wrong thought even every wrong way of thinking so that we might be the people you desire us to be. Thank you for those demonstrations of your love that are evident in this congregation already. We're gonna have opportunities in the weeks and months ahead and some of it will be painful. But in the end, it will all be joyful because we will grow in our likeness to you. We will demonstrate to a world that's really lost and confused in their thinking what Christ-like love looks like. And we will bring blessing one to another. So for all of that, Lord, we commit ourselves 
to loving one another. We consecrate ourselves on this day to living as Christ has lived and loving as he has loved. So Father, we ask that your truth would remain sealed in our hearts and that your blessing would rest upon our assembly for the glory of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.